you need a Bible, would you please raise your hand? Please raise your hand and turn in those Bibles. You can't see the scriptures up there because of the way that the slide was designed. The genius that did that, that would be me. Uh, Mark 14, Nehemiah 1, and actually that says 2 Corinthians. We won't be there today, but Romans 7 we will be in, Romans 7 and 8. And I am excited to get to these passages today, truly. So uh, if you would please turn your Bible to those places. So I think we covered everything that's coming up at the church um, tonight. How many of you have been through the book of Deuteronomy? All right. A lot of people maybe have not been through that book. We're going to go through the book tonight. Uh, we're going to do an overview of the book online for the Through the Bible series. And you have some really amazing pictures of the cross and Christ in this book. In Deuteronomy, yes, in Deuteronomy. 7 p.m., we go Facebook Live, www.newlifecalvary.com, um, or Facebook Live at 7 o'clock tonight. Then we do Q&A after that. Okay, so it won't be more than an hour tonight. Um, yeah, <laughs> love me less. Okay. All right. So it's pretty interesting where we find ourselves at the beginning of Christmas season because in our verse by verse, chapter by chapter study, we actually find ourselves towards the end of a gospel. Uh, and I'm kind of excited about that. And you'll find out why as uh, today unfolds. Today's going to be our last message in Mark until January. Um, then we're going to go back and look at the Christmas story a little bit and uh, different ways. But right now we're in Mark 14, verse 32. And as I would ask you to please set your phasers on stun, um, cell phones. So uh, I'm just putting, I'm making sure that mine is off. Um, and we're going to be Mark 14, verse 32. And it reads like this. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? And remember that in light of what Peter just said. Hey, if he, even if everybody else fails you tonight, if everybody else fails you, I'm not going to. So think of that statement and that question in light of that. Verse 38 says, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed and the hands uh, at the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. And Father in heaven, we just pray today um, as we know the spirit is willing and we know the flesh is weak. We have been given the gift from you because of your son. And if we've been acting in our own power and found ourselves very tired because of it, then today we pray. As your word promises that faith comes by hearing, hearing comes from the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love apple turnovers. Love apple turnovers. I have a soft spot for them. So on the dessert table, there are a couple of desserts. One that you might not find out there because if the pastor gets to the table before you do, uh, the apple turnovers I love. But apple turnovers, as you well know, can be tricky, right? Because not all apple turnovers are created equal. Would you agree? And you're like, where are you going with this? And what are you talking about? Not all apple turnovers are created equal. Well, you know this, that if you've ever bit into an apple turnover and, oh, and it's warm and it's full of apples and it's juicy and it's sweet and it's delicious. And yes, I'll use the word moist. Uh, it's <laughs> the apple. Everybody knows I hate that word. That's why I said it. Uh, and so you bite into the apple turnover and it's a quite a wonderful experience. But some of you when you have bitten into apple turnovers, well, it's kind of dry and there's a few apples in there and it's not all that good. But that some of you have bitten into apple turnovers and it's air, right? There's no apple in them whatsoever and they might as well call them air turnovers, all right? And so when you bite into an apple turnover, the only way to truly find out what's on the inside is to apply pressure. Some people may take a fork and a knife. I would prefer the cutting instruments God blessed us with called teeth. And when you bite into them, you find out what's on the inside. Now, if you go to a baker, you got a better chance of getting a good one than you do a grocery store, but you will not know unless you made it or unless you watched it made, you won't know what's in the apple turnover until you've bit in and applied pressure to it. Some of you would now understand, well, I think I know where he's going with this. Well, yeah, you probably do now. All right, we people find out who we are, not what we say we are, not the Christian t-shirts we wear and the bumper stickers we have on our car, but they find out who we are and what we believe by the fruit comes out when you and I are pressed. Would you agree? So what comes out when we're pressed, that reveals who we are. Uh, what we do when we're facing crisis reveals what we believe. So now we are finishing the study of Mark season. What we'll do is the next couple of weeks as we look at the Christmas story, these will be kind of like flashbacks before we get to the cross. But we're going to focus on this moment today where everybody in this scene that we're going to study gets very pressed and you will see what comes out. So we have called the message under pressure. Um, that's the title of the message for the day. And I think you'll see why as we uh, get into it. So again, we look at Mark 14, just the first verse for a moment. It says, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. All right, stop right there. Gethsemane. 
You're familiar with it. You've all heard of this prayer that Jesus says in the garden. And, and this is the place where uh, another gospel tells us that, you know, is that there are drops of blood that are uh, pouring out of him um, like sweat uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is a small grove consisting of eight ancient olive trees at the foot of Mount Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem. But why is it significant? Well, because in the original language, what the word Gethsemane means is, well, it's basically a press, a place for pressing oil. It's a place for pressing oil. Now, here's how it works. All right, During Jesus' time, a heavy stone slab was lowered onto the olives that had already been crushed in an olive crust. So it's already been crushed, now it's going to be pressed. Gradually, the slab's weight squeezed the olive oil out of the pulp, and the oil ran into a pit. There the oil was collected in clay jars. The process of pressing olive oil was done like this. Stop right there for a second. We can already see the significance, perhaps, of a place of pressing that they're all going to find themselves at on this evening. And it's going to feel like after they've been crushed, now they're going to be squeezed the olive oil out of the pulp. How many of you are in a pressing season in your life right now? All right, when you look at this, the Garden of Gethsemane, what's going to happen here is you're going to really see what everybody believes tonight. When we look at the Garden of Gethsemane on this night in this place, and it goes to the first generation, the first of several points we'll make today. Uh, one is that there are places and moments of pressing in our lives that are unavoidable and necessary. You know this. As long as you're breathing, you've found yourself in seasons of getting pressed and places where you feel like the pulp is getting squeezed out of you. All right, so you're, you're in these seasons, and sometimes you do really well with these times of pressing, right? Sometimes you walk out of church feeling, I'm fabulous, I'm super Christian, and sometimes you're wondering if you're saved at all. Do I even know Jesus? How many of you have been there? How many of you have thought of like, when you're getting pressed, you're like, you know, God is really strengthening me, I'm in a great season of my life right now, and I really feel like I'm getting this Jesus thing. And then there are some days, like, I don't even want to open a Bible, I don't want to pray, I don't want to talk to anybody. Somebody go on Facebook. Let me scroll through Facebook today. All right? And so these are what happened during our times of pressing. But we also know this, is that times of pressing, when we're under stress, would you agree that these are the greatest times of growth? All right, a lot of you are familiar with uh, some of the therapies that Han is going through. They're called neurotherapy. And what happens is this, is that they have these infraslow frequencies that are being introduced to her brain. And what they do is, for an extended amount of time, they put the brain under duress. Now, the best times of learning for people that are having these type of treatments are for a half an hour to an hour and a half after the treatment. Because after the brain has been exposed to this kind of duress, this kind of stress, well, it's scientifically proven that these are our greatest to change behavior, to learn new behaviors. And so the places of pressing are somewhat necessary in our lives. Even when Jesus, after he's baptized, what happens? He goes to the wilderness. And he's tested. And so they're in Gethsemane, a place of pressing. And Jesus says to his disciples, you sit here while I pray. You sit here while I pray. He's not telling the disciples to pray. Now, the disciples, if they had any 
common sense. They'd be saying, okay, well, Jesus is going to have to pray because of what's coming. Maybe I should be praying. Listen, Jesus is always, a favorite pastor of mine used to say this, Jesus is always the smartest one in the room. So if he's sitting here saying, listen, because of what's coming, I need to pray, chances are we should be praying at that moment too. And it brings us to our second consideration, all right? Is that when you're getting pressed, you should have a plan. You've gone into the same situation over and over and over again. And every time you get into the same situation, you respond the same way. All right? Now, Jesus knows that he's going into the situation. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be already been betrayed. He knows he's been abandoned. He knows he's going to be denied. He knows all of these things. He knows this. Here's his game plan. Eight of the disciples... You guys sit here and watch. I'm going to go pray. This is the game plan. I'll have eight of you here. I'm taking another three with me, but you sit here. I pray. This is my game plan. What's yours? All right, if you keep going into the same situation and you keep getting your backside handed to you, that's the nicest way I can say that, if you keep responding or reacting the same way, what's your game plan? Because you know every single day you're going to get pressed, right? We're breathing. We're going to get pressed. We're going to get challenged. And so if you have a situation that you walk in, it's a coworker, and every time they say this, you react like this. Somebody in your family, maybe. And every time they respond, you react a certain way. Every single time, without fail. I know there are certain situations in my own life that I would walk into, and every single time, I would react the same way, because I had no plan. So I had no plan. So I kept getting hit with the same challenges. And so what do we do? When we study the Gospels, we always like to say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, what would Jesus do when he was pressed? Well, he said, listen, you sit here. I'm going to pray. Prayer can always be a part of a great game plan. We need that. Prayer has been established at a great cost. The lines of communication, it took a lot to repair them. Just like after a hurricane, when communication goes out, well, then you have FP&L, you've got the power company, you've got the cable companies, they're all over fixing the lines. To repair the line between man and God so that we could just talk to him, cost him his son on a cross. And so if we see Jesus praying, and that's the model that he sets for us, well, maybe we could be praying a little more if we're going through our struggles. Now, part of your game plan, here's what I thought of when I thought of uh, what Jesus was doing here. Three words as part of your game plan. Three, these three should be part of every game plan for any challenge that you're going through. You ready for them? Love. And we see that here. Humility. We're going to see that here. And prayer. If these things are not part of the conflict you're facing right now, then you need to rethink your strategy because you're going to keep losing. Love, humility, and prayer if you're going through conflict. So if you're going through a time of pressing, you need to have some kind of a plan. So Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And so that way, when you come to the pastor and you say, you know, Pastor John, I'm going through this. I'm going, the first thing I'm going to say is, have you prayed about it? I'm going to say, did you pray about it? Did you pray with the person that you're struggling with for it? No, I don't want to pray with them. Chances are, if you're saying, no, I don't want to pray with them, that's probably when you need to pray with them. 
or pray. Chances are, if you're going through a situation and you're saying, listen, I just don't feel like praying right now, that's when you need to go and pray. That's when you need to go and pray. But don't feel like doing it. Why? Because God needs to hear your voice? Oh, my day's just not going to be complete, God says, unless John gets on his face to me and says, the Our Father. No. No. When I pray, what happens is it keeps him in perspective. When do I need him in perspective? You can write it like this. All right, you ready? For the note-takers, always. I always need him in perspective. Do you know how hard these messages are to teach? Because those of you who know me know that I struggle with it. So if you're sitting there saying, well, Pastor John, do you always have him in perspective? No. So what did he give me? You. The church. That's how we keep him in perspective. So you've got to have a plan. Plan's got to include prayer, love, humility. Prayer is the, one of the it's a, prayer in and of itself is a miracle. Did you know that? Prayer in and of itself, the very fact that you can talk to God has only been made possible by His Son, by a supernatural act, by a death and a resurrection on the cross. Better be part of your plan. Prayer is my way of saying, I do not have this figured out, not at all. I thought I did, but I don't, so I need some help. I need you. Every hour, I need you. So, eight disciples, he says, you sit here and watch while I pray. Verse 33 says, And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Stop right there. We're, we're, we're doing. We're going verse by verse today, all right? I hope that's okay, because that's what we're going to do. He took Peter, James, and Why does he only take the three? Listen, these guys, for some reason, for whatever reason, Jesus designated these three men. They saw some things that none of the other disciples saw firsthand. Right? In Mark 5, what we saw, they saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. They saw this. They saw a man that they believed was the Messiah raise this little girl from the dead. In Mark 9, what we saw is Jesus took the three of them, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountain, and what did they see? They saw the transfiguration. They saw him at his most man. They saw him at his most God. They saw the miracles that he performed. Hey, if anybody's going to be strong with me during this time, if I'm going to have anybody's steady companionship, it's going to be these three. It's going to be these guys. So the eight are here, but the three are going with me. It's going to bring us to our third consideration. The way you get pressed is going to be proportional to the depth of immersion. What does that even mean, okay? All right, I'm, just, just go with me on this. The way you get pressed is going to be proportional to the depth of immersion. So in other words, the, in the deeper water you get, the more you're going to experience God. That's a simple way of saying it. All right, the deeper the water you go into, the more you're going to have a God experience. Now, it doesn't mean he loves the people that go in deeper any more than the people that stay in the shallow water. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means you'll have a greater experience the more you spend your life seeking God and obeying God and doing the things that he called you to do. And so you've got three of these disciples, and you see this throughout Jesus' ministry, right? So he feeds the multitudes. He feeds thousands. But after that lesson feeding the multitudes, what does he do? He sends the disciples into the water, right? Now there's only 12 of them, and they're going to experience a storm. Now the other, the other part of the crowd is not going to experience this. 
They're not going to get to see this. But the 12 are going to get to experience the storm. It's kind of like, God, love me less. I mean, it's going to get rougher rather than easier when I go with Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Hello. So now you've got the 12 in the boat. Now, so you fed the multitudes. Now you've got a little bit of private lessons, a little group lesson for the disciples as they're in the storm. But only one of those disciples is going to actually step off of the boat and go onto the water. He's going to find something and experience something that the other 11 are not going to. Does this make sense? So it's like, if you're in the room saying, I want that deep experience with God. I want that deep experience with God. Then he's going to take you into the water. And to an extent, your experience is going to be proportional to the way that you're going to immerse yourself. Saying, listen, God, I'm all yours. We've said it so often, we ask the wrong question in the church. We say, do you have the Holy Spirit? What's the right question? Does the Holy Spirit have you? Does the Holy Spirit have you? Does He have your everything? We liken it to the ocean. We're, we live in Florida, right? Now, some people that live in different parts of the United States, well, they see pictures of the ocean. They'll go on the internet or they've got a picture in their room of the ocean. That's about as much as the ocean as they're ever going to get. Then you have some people that drive up and down A1A and they'll look at the ocean. Then you have other people that will go to the beach, but they don't kind of don't like their feet on the sand. And so they'll look at the water won't go on the beach. You've got the other people that will go in and they'll start wading in the water. Then you've got people that go in the water and, all right, they're all, as soon as they get to that water, it's like they dive head. Who's going to have a greater experience with the water? Now you have other people that will go there with a the snorkel and they'll go underwater for extended periods. But then you have the others that go scuba diving. All right? But even that isn't as far as you can go. Then you have maniacs like James Cameron. And some of you may know where I'm going with this, some of you don't. James Cameron <coughs> is known for what? I'll give you a hint. I'll never let go. I'll never let go. Yeah, it's Titanic, okay? James Cameron is known for the Titanic, but he's known globally for. Right. Okay. He's known for an historic expedition to the Mariana Trench, the lowest point, the Challenger Deep, which lies 6.83 miles below the ocean surface, was the most first extensive scientific exploration and a manned submersible. So he came up with this manned submersible of the deepest spot on the Earth. On March 26, 2012, Cameron successfully piloted the Deep Sea Challenger, outfitted for scientific exploration, to the ocean's deepest point where he collected samples and documented the experience in high-resolution 3D, for which he's known globally. Now, as with spaceships, deep-sea submersibles must be engineered to accommodate innumerable challenges, including dramatic changes in pressure and temperature and a total absence of sunlight. Let me ask you something. Do you think that he's seen more of the ocean and experienced more of what the ocean has to offer than us who have gone to the beach periodically when it's hot outside? And Yes? He's experienced it. He's had the... Now, for me, as far as going that deep, I'm happy with VR. 
I'm happy with virtual reality because we've got this little game at home and I can put the headset on and it's like I'm, I'm in the headset and I'm going underwater and I look up and I can see the water and I can see the fish. Things that I would never see in reality. And now what happens is it starts banging my cage. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. But I would never, ever want to do this in real life. Because <laughs> as a Christian, some of us have only got, some of us are kind of doing it VR. We're doing virtual reality Christianity. Right? And you haven't really had Satan rattle your cage yet. Believe me, he wants to. He's out there. And the further you go, the more he's out to discourage you from doing it. Right? Because we know this. In the church, in the church, some folks go, And they're able to check it off the list. This is the world we live in. Some go and they say, you know what, I wanna this is a this is a body and I wanna be an active part of the body. Listen, just like with every, you know, my, my fingers are important, my wrist is important, my elbow is important. Every part of this is important that it's fully engaged. Right? And so it's important for the church body. That we are immersed together. Immersed together completely. Here's what happens when I'm not immersed. I'm drifting. I'm drifting. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had those seasons in your life where you felt like, you know what, I feel like I'm really drifting from God? Guess what? He has not moved. He's not moved. He's all around you. He's inside of you. He has not moved. His desire for your life has always been because you're his child to have time with you for your worship. But here's what's happening. In our society, we're becoming a society where uh, because of the distractions, you can walk into a room, you can even walk into a Bible study. Everybody's on this. And what happens is the more we're on this, the more we're missing this. This is just where our society's gone. Here's what I want. As a father, as a husband, as, what I want is this. I, I, I want relationship. I love this. Right? This is one of the benefits of a smaller church is that I know what a lot of you are going through. I don't know every single thing you're going through. But I know some of you are really going through it. And those of you that know us, you know what our family's gone through. And that's what we do, is we go through it together. And we go through it in this. And the more we cut ourselves off from this, the more we're going to feel cut off, period. Why? Because faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes from the Word. Pastor John, you say... Because it's, it's foundational. So many are struggling with their faith. Why? Because they've separated themselves from the Word. And we've said this before, that the deeper that you go into there, you find things. When we go into Deuteronomy tonight, we're finding things, man. We are finding things. All right, we're, we're plumbing the depths. We're going, we're going into verses tonight where it's like, you just see Jesus. It's like he's all over Deuteronomy. Here's what happens. It's like when you see, wow, I didn't know it said that. I didn't know the Bible went there. 
I didn't know that in Deuteronomy 21, it says, cursed is any man that hangs on a tree. And how that's referred to, and I didn't know that. It's all right there. And it all makes sense, and it all comes together and is beautifully interwoven. And the more you get of it, the more you, you immerse yourself into it, the more that you want. And so Jesus says, as he took Peter, James, and John, verse 33, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch. Again, Peter, James, and John, he doesn't say stay here and pray. He says stay here and I want you to watch. All right? I want the companionship. I want the relationship. I know where I'm going. You stay here and you watch. But it says that he himself was troubled and deeply distressed, sorrowful even to death. Now, here's what he doesn't mean. Some of you have been sick to death of something or someone. I'm sick to death. All right. I'm sick to death. I'm sick to death of political posts. I'm sick to death of them. But here's what I'm not. I'm not sorrowful to death because my soul is burdened. That I'm not. You can only understand this if you've experienced the worst and the most heartbreaking and the most challenging of what this life has to offer here. Think of what Jesus knows that he's about to go through. He knows he's about to go through a cross. There's still, to this day, hardly an instrument of torture like a cross, like a crucifixion. So he's anticipating that physical. The man part is anticipating that, but it's more than that. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been in perfect relationship forever, for all time's sake. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they've been in perfect relationship, and now He's going to become as He becomes sin on a cross. And that relationship cause Him to cry out, and we'll see this coming up, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Only you that know the depth of heartbreak can even begin to fathom the trouble his Gethsemane is closing in on him. And so, as we're getting pressed, what's going to also be revealed is another consideration. As we're getting pressed, what is going to be revealed is what you're passionate about. What's important to you? What's important to Jesus in this moment where he's going to be pressed? What's important? Well, the relationship with these men, the eight and then the three, that's important. But also, what is on his heart is the church that he's about to give his life for. Some of us get troubled over things that I would venture to say don't necessarily trouble God half as much as they trouble us. Is what is troubling you, distressing you, challenging you something that God is challenged by. Some of you here, quite honestly, you might be losing sleep. Maybe you're losing weight, losing hair, losing time, losing joy. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> 
Wow. So one just walked out. No, he didn't walk out because of that. I don't, I don't think he might have. Uh, but, but listen, it's more important, gang. Some of you are losing joy. And you're losing peace. He says, I came that you could have abundant life. I came that you'd have abundant life. And those things that are, as you're going into the deep water, it's like we have to realize that so often we get stressed and pressed about things that are not pressing God. When we realign our burden, when we realign our relationship, what happens is that the things of heaven are beginning to burden us more than the things of earth. And that's needed. Too many of us, bad is right. Too many of us, it's needed, all right? We need to be burdened over the things of heaven. We need to have a burden for lost people, people that are good, that when you go out there, you don't even realize it, but when you go out there, there are so many people that have not heard the name of Jesus, and because of that, they, have, they haven't heard the gospel, they're not, able to, they're not responding to it. That's our responsibility. Is that burdening you? Well, you know, I think my car needs an oil change, and I'm really kind of concerned about the oil change that my car needs, and if I don't go grocery shopping and my schedule's really hectic right now, are you burdened for the lost? Are you burdened for making disciples? Are you burdened for the blank? Are you burdened more for... Now, these, these things are concerns. They are considerations. They're things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. But when we start aligning our priorities with that which of heaven, you're going to start looking at the world and be burdened and be brought to the place that Jesus has brought. And where is he brought? He's brought to the place of prayer. Because this is also what pressing does. It reveals who you're leaning on. Pressing reveals who you're leaning on. Because when you're getting pressed, you're going to press into something. How many of you, have, when you've gotten pressed, you press into the people that love you the most and you treat them the worst? Huh. When we're getting pressed, it reveals what we're leaning on. It reveals who we're leaning on. So what does Jesus do? It says here, he went a little further. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And this is, to me, one of the most compelling portions of all Scripture. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will stop. All right, when he's pressed, what is Jesus doing? He's on his face and he's praying. He's on his face and he's praying. Now, we're going to take a look at what the disciples do in this moment in a couple of minutes. But Jesus is on his face and he's praying. Our burden should always bring us there. I love reading Oswald Chambers, for the most part. <laughs> we always say that the, his devotional is called my utmost for his highest. And sometimes Anthony and I, we joke around saying it feels like it's kind of like it should be called a hammer for your heart daily. You know, it's like bang, bang, bang. And one of the things he says, is like when you're struggling with someone, are you praying for them? All right? Or, or, or are you saying this, well, you know what? Alex, you know, Vlas, uh, he's struggling all over there. We really need to pray for him. You know what's going on in his life? <laughs> let's talk a little bit. And then let's pray for him. Let's make sure we pray for him. That's really important. It's really important that we pray when we're burdened. That's where the burden is designed to bring us. Because sometimes when we're deeply burdened, have you found when you're deeply burdened, sometimes we can get critical. 
Sometimes when we're deeply burdened, we can get annoyed. Sometimes deeply burdened, I need to vent. Pastor, guilty. Deeply burdened, let me criticize. Deeply burdened, uh, let me go on to Facebook. Hashtag rant over. All right, rant over. Can you imagine Nehemiah posting on social media saying, huh, the wall of Jerusalem is burning, hashtag pray for Jerusalem. Or posting a meme, pray for Jerusalem. No, what does Nehemiah do? He weeps, he fasts, he prays because he's burdened for the things that are burdening God, God's people. All right, and so what Jesus does when he is pressed is he prays. Now, it's not just the fact that we should pray when we're pressed, but how we pray, we see what Jesus says here. And to me, this is one of the greatest challenges in all Scripture. Jesus Christ prayed this. He said, hey, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. I'm not adding words to this. I'm reading it directly from Scripture. Jesus in his humanity is praying, God, if this hour is possible, Abba, Father, all things are possible through you. All things are possible. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you want. And what here is not only prayer, because a lot of people pray when they're in trouble. Atheists pray when they're in trouble. That's why it's often said there's no atheist in, a, in foxholes. But it's not just prayer. It's how we pray. It's trusting prayer. And that's what we see Jesus does here. It's a true prayer of faith. It says, listen, you know, I know that all things are possible. I know you can do this. Take this cup away from me even again. But even if you don't, it's not as I will. It's as you will. Do you trust that? That if the pray things that you're praying for do not come to pass the way that you want them to come to pass, do you still trust that He's God? He's not only in control, but He's working it together for good to those that love Him. Because what He's done in giving us prayer, He's given you something that can change your circumstances. Can it? God doesn't change. Does God change? No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does prayer do? A lot of people would simply say, well, prayer changes you. Well, prayer can change your immediate circumstance. We see it time and time again throughout Scripture. Somebody prays, and because of somebody's prayer, the trajectory of what's going to happen changes. And God uses prayer to change immediate circumstances, but it doesn't change his overall plan. Because before the beginning of time, he knew that you were going to get on your face when you were stressed and pressed. He knew that you were going to say that prayer, and he knew he was going to use that prayer in order to change the circumstance. Does this make sense? So pray. Okay, that's all. I mean, it's like if you got lost through any of that, understand this, is that when you're burdened, get on your face and pray and trust. Because that's what he's doing. The term, he's saying, Abba, all right? And, and it's like a way of saying, Daddy, Father. Do we have that relationship where it's like if Daddy doesn't give us what he wants, that what we want, that he still knows exactly what he's doing. Now listen, this is also very important when you're praying God's will. Because we understand this. You understand that when you're praying God's will, a lot of the time, God's specific will for an individual has not been revealed to you, right? How many times have you said, you know, I, I have no idea how to pray for this person? Guess what? Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit does. So the Holy Spirit knows what to pray. So, you know, if God places something on your heart, you pray that, and then we say, well, God, not as I will, but as you will, because I trust you. 
Let your will be done. And this man is going to trust you. Here's what's also happening. While it doesn't change God, it can change your immediate circumstance. It's also changing you. It's also changing you. And so, Jesus is praying. Listen, what if the cup is taken away? What if the cup is taken away? And how does God answer his prayer? A lot of people have suggested that this is one of the greatest unanswered prayers in history. I disagree completely. Because of what happens next. Because as he's praying, if there's any way to remove this cup, here's what he comes back each time and what he finds. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he said the third time, he said to them, verse 41, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Stop right there. What is revealed about the disciples? They're weak. And every time he goes back, because remember, things happen in Scripture three times. It's kind of like God's way of getting his point across. He goes by three times, and three times he sees exactly that their spirit is willing, but the flesh is very weak. These guys are sleeping. What do we do in our times when we're getting pressed? Sometimes we eat. All right? Some of us will revert to food. Some of us will go to the channel clicker. Some of us will get on social media. Some of us will uh, revert to porn. Some of us will revert to fill in the blank. Pick your poison as to whatever it is that you begin to depend on when we should be relying on the things of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. These guys, if they're to be left to their own devices, they will be destroyed because he knows the battle between the flesh and the Spirit is raging. Raging. Does God understand this? Very much. All right, and just like it brings the things of the Spirit, bring Jesus to prayer, but the things of the flesh, right now these guys are falling asleep. The answer's clear. They're so weak. They're so weak. There's no other way to do this. Because here's what happens. If he doesn't die, then they don't get his Holy Spirit. He told the disciples he had to go away. I have to go away so that the Father can give the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the way the plan has worked out from before the beginning of time. And so we have this stress between the flesh and the Spirit. And you feel that tug of war with you every day, right? It's articulated really well. We're not going to go back to Mark, but go over to Romans 7. It's a passage that a lot of you are familiar with, but we're going to point out something that I hope, I wonder if you've seen. Romans 7 is really important. Verse 15, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says in verse 15, let's go back to verse 14. uh, For we, and I want you to notice where I put the stresses in reading. For we know that the law is spiritual, I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not That I do. Nobody can relate to that. Nobody here can relate to the fact that the things that we shouldn't do, we're doing. The things that we should be doing, we're not doing. 
says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing that in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I do. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Just stop right there. You can go through the rest of the chapter, and here's what you're going to find. All right? You don't find the, word, the, the, the mention of the word spirit one time. Not one time right there through, through that course of, of, of verses. But what you do find is this. The word I and me and my, I, me, and my, they're mentioned between 30 and 40 times if you do the math. And so what happens is this, we find ourselves reversed and kind of going back to the flesh when we're getting pressed because we're depending on the power of I. I. One pastor writes about a friend of his that was struggling with alcoholism. And I think we'll find a lot of significance in this. He said, a friend of mine said to me yesterday, I have had such a desire to drink for the last three months. That's all I could think about. It was so intense. Just wanted to get drunk, but I didn't act on it. Now that desire is totally lifted. I don't want to drink even if you paid me. I replied, yeah, when I used to wait tables at this restaurant, I felt the same urge. I had to serve alcohol sometimes. The entire time I worked there, there was a voice that spoke to me longingly, oh, buy me a drink. And every time I worked, I carried that thirsty desire. Well, did you, she asked? No, because I knew it wasn't me. I myself didn't have any desire to drink, so I didn't give in just because I'm defiant. In other words, I knew the flesh was trying to press me to do this. If I ever drank, I want to drink on my own terms, not when I'm feeling pressured by my flesh. There's the key. Not when I'm feeling pressured to do this by the flesh for gratification. If I'm feeling pressured from my flesh, well, I know, again, a lot of you in this room. And a lot of you are like, you know what, I don't want somebody to tell me I can't do something. Yeah? Well, your flesh is telling you all the time that you can't have the things of the Spirit. Your flesh, is telling, your flesh is telling you all the time that you can't have the things of the Spirit. And so this is where, in being a Christian, you see, we didn't have the ability to do this before the cross. But when Jesus died on the cross, He gave us the power of the Holy Spirit. And now it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, I've been crucified with Christ. And so now inside of you is the Spirit. It's the power to overcome when the flesh is saying, oh, you want this, you need this. No, if you're saying, I need it, then I know I definitely don't need it because what I need is that. I need the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. And so that's what Jesus did. Religion tells you to put down your fleshly desires and resist temptation by being strong-willed and disciplined. That's what religion tells you. God's solution is to make your flesh a non-issue by turning your entire focus, your entire life, towards walking in the Spirit, which He gave you when you repented of your sins and became a child of God. He put His Spirit inside of you. Do you want to know what the solution to Romans 7 is? Romans 8. 
Check it out. Romans 8. Listen to this, gang. It's Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we're going, somebody count to see how many times you see the word I in the next section. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Of sin. I still don't see any eyes. He condemned us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I still don't see eyes. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the for to be carnally minded is death, life, and peace, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Then those who are in the flesh cannot Spirit. If indeed the you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And you can go on through the rest of the chapter, but even in those verses, what you have is this. 20 Times the word spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, is mentioned. Romans 7 is about I. Romans 8 is about the spirit. A lot of us are living in the weakness of Romans 7 when God gave you his spirit so you could live in the power of Romans 8. All right, so with the greatest dilemma that the Bible can outline in Romans 7, it's this tug of war between the flesh and the spirit, and it's articulated in just a few verses with I me, my, and that's articulated really well, that great problem that every single one of us struggle with, that equally more powerful solution is found right in Romans 8 and is made possible because Jesus sent his son to die for your sins. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's the freedom that has been won for you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus goes back to them, listen to what he's not doing, gang. What he's not doing is he's going, you guys weak. You guys stink. After all I've done for you in the last three years, you guys are a bunch of failures. You're sitting there sleeping. Peter, you especially. He's not doing that, right? Here's what happens. His path is clear. Here's what happens to us. Sometimes having received that grace and that spirit of God, now it happens. People go, you failed epically because of that. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you need a savior. Don't you Christian hold people to standards that you could the gospel? You needed the cross. Don't hold them to standards that you yourself could not live up to. Instead, encourage the freedom and hold accountable. Yes, absolutely. All of these things are so very important. But we encourage one another on. We spur one another on to good works. That's freedom. That's what the Spirit of God makes possible. I'm going to close you with a story uh, written by Max Lucado. Okay, good. I was waiting for somebody to say it's Lucado, Pastor John. I don't know if it's Lucado or Lucado. 
You say Lucado, I say Lucado. Lucado, 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 Lucado. Let's call the whole thing off. Anyway, Lucado <laughs> writes. Yeah, thanks. Several years ago, he goes, when, when my legs were stronger, Lucado writes, my belly was flatter and my ego was bigger. I let my friend Pat convince me to enter a bike race. Not just any bike race, mind you, but a race that included a one and a half mile climb up a steep hill with a gradient of 12%. In other words, it was a tough climb out of the saddle, set your thighs on fire, prepare to suck for 10 minutes section of the race, appropriately called the killer diller. It lived up to the hype. I knew its reputation, still I signed up because Pat, my riding buddy, told me I could make it. Easy for Pat to say. He's 15 years my junior and has completed, competed since his elementary school days. He was riding on spin bikes before most of us knew what they were. When I balked at the idea of competing the race, he assured me, believe me, Max, you will make it. I almost didn't. In quick fashion, the riders who belonged there left those of us who didn't far behind. We, the barrel-bellied laggards, made jokes about the upcoming ascent, but we didn't joke for long. It takes wind to talk. We soon needed all the wind we could muster to climb. I pushed and huffed and puffed, and about that point, the ascent began. By the time I was halfway to the top, my thighs were on fire, and I was... Uh, Trying to not go back up the hill, I dismounted his bike and scurried to give me a hand. I'm, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Says, By the time I was halfway to the top, my thighs were on fire. My friend came back up the hill after he dismounted his bike, scurried to give me a hand. Literally, he began pushing me up the hill. The fact that he could keep up with me tells you how slowly I was pedaling. I told you that I wouldn't make it. He shouted, I came to make sure you did. My bicycle story has a wonderful ending. Thanks to the push from my friend Pat, I climbed the hill, relished in the downhill conclusion, and I crossed the finish line. I finished in the back of the pack, mind you, but I finished. Suppose I had refused Pat's assistance. Suppose perished the thought I had resisted his help. Can you imagine the folly if I had come to a stop, dismounted, and told him, I can do this all by myself, thank you very much. Or imagine if I denied his ability to help me. This is too great even for you, Pat. No one can climb the killer diller hill. Worst of all, what if I had accused him of being the enemy? You're a fraud, get away. To have reacted to Pat in such a way would have been foolish. To react in such a way to the Spirit of God would be much more so. In other words, if your flesh is failing, the spirit is willing. The spirit is willing, and the spirit has been given to you. So with that said, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask Matthias to come up. and Father God, we just love you so very much. And we thank you for truth, and that is that your spirit has been imparted to us. Not a little bit of it. Now, we're leaky vessels, God. We know that. But that fresh filling is there. And perhaps somebody in here today has forgotten your beauty and your power and your wonder. 
And what a great reminder that while the disciples are sitting there just struggling to keep their eyes open, you look at your dear ones. All right, that's enough. That's enough. You love us so much, God. I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody in here today that is struggling, God, that we would just take the last few moments of our time together and they would acknowledge their need for you. They would say, listen, I'm looking at my circumstances financially. Nothing uh, on paper (laughs) looks like it makes sense to me right now. the relationship you're struggling with, whatever it is that you're struggling with. We have the anointing oil, and if you're in a struggle right now, I don't care if there's a line. Whatever it is your battle is with today, or maybe you just need relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've never asked Him to be the Savior of your life, and you're here today saying, I need to make that decision. I need to make it today. I need to turn my life over because my way has failed. Jesus is saying, I'm waiting. So if there's a particular struggle or if you want to have that relationship with Jesus, I'm going to ask you to just come to the cross. I'm going to ask the church to pray right now. But if you need to just make your way up to this cross right now and you need prayer for anything that it is that you're going through, If you just need strength, whatever it is, pray for a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit.